Welcome to Scrolling to Death. I'm Nikki, and today I'm here with the founder and CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate, Imran Ahmed. Welcome, Imran. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So first, can you tell us about CCDH? Sure. Well, the Center for Countering Digital Hate is about four and a half years old. We're uh, an organization based in Washington, D.C., but with offices in London, and we're opening one in Brussels and in L.A. this year. Our job is to look at the way in which social media platforms create harm when they do. And, you know, social media platforms are ubiquitous now. They're great. That's why, because they connect people. Mm -hmm. But we know that, you know, the way that these platforms have been designed and the way that they've been managed by the people that own them have not have actually allowed some harms to creep in and so when those harms emerge we identify them we work with the platforms if they're willing to work with us and if not then with legislators with advertisers who are their key customers Um, and we try and get that change in the real world because you know it's all very good sort of pointing at harm but really someone's got to do something about it and we've taken on that role. Great what led you to start the Center for Countering Digital Hate? The truth is, it's it's a really sad story. Um, oh. I was working in British politics about seven years ago mm-hmm. during the EU referendum, and two things happened simultaneously in the UK in, in 2016. In early 2016, a wave of anti-Semitic hate swept the, the British left, the Labour Party for which I worked, mm-hmm. which I found to be distressing and um, something that needed to be addressed. But very shortly after, we had the referendum on whether or not the Britain should remain in the European Union. In the course of that that referendum, which was really, really sullied by a large amount of hate and disinformation that was being spread digitally, mm-hmm. my colleague, Jo Cox, a member of parliament, she was 35 years old, she was a mother of two, was shot, stabbed and beaten to death on the cobbled stones of her constituency in Batley and Spen in the north of England. And I really admired Jo. I thought she had the potential to be uh, the Prime Minister of England. She just was someone with energy and compassion and intelligence. To see her life taken at the hands of someone who'd been radicalised by online conspiracy theories and hate, it was just overwhelming. And so CCDH was set up as a cry of grief, frustration, anger, Um, to see, well, what could we do to try and reduce the amount of hate and disinformation in online spaces? And unfortunately, what we found in the first three years before we launched publicly in 2019 was that the platforms talk a good game, but they don't do enough. And so CCDH now makes sure that we put the pressure on the right ways through the press, Mm -hmm. through legislators, through advertisers to make sure they do the right thing. Okay. Thank you for sharing that story. And We're going to cover misinformation and disinformation online hate today. There's some pretty intense topics to cover here, but it's important that parents understand the research behind what's going on within the platforms. And the goal here at Scrolling to Death is to educate parents so that we can make safer decisions on the family level as well. So parents like me often feel a lack of control. We feel confused about what our kids are accessing, what these platforms are doing to our kids and how to prepare our kids to use technology safely. And a lot of the harmful content and the way the platforms are built is out of our control. It's platform design, delays in legislation, 
But what I hope we can do today is, is learn from you on what the studies that you've done, the experience that you have, and drill down on educating parents and highlighting where harms lie, uh, where we can get educated and can take some control. Imran, let's start with the fact that teenage social media use is still on the rise despite studies showing how it affects their mental health negatively. There are powerful stats around the time they're spending and strong indications of addiction. So let's talk about the addictive nature of social media for our younger kids. And on a recent panel, I'll quote you, you stated, people think that social media gives them more of what they want and social media doesn't give you more of what you want. It gives you more of what it wants you to like. It gives you more of what keeps you addicted. So can you expand upon the addictive nature of these platforms? Sure. All the platforms initially started not with advertising, not with anything, just as ways to connect people, essentially. And that was a really compelling value proposition. It was, you know, the idea of being able to see what your friends are up to, what your family are up to. Believe me, I see the strengths of these platforms. I moved to the US in the summer of 2020. Wow. You know, during the pandemic, and I was on my own. I had no partner. I was stuck um, alone in a room in Washington, D.C., with the only way of feeling love, you know, being able to express vulnerability was through social media, through communicating with my friends that way. Mm-hmm. And I-, I can see the real power of it. But at the same time, you know, I know that that platform doesn't make any money from me. In fact, you're a cost, you're a pain to them. Like, Ah, more people just using. They need money. And how do they make money? Well, it's through advertising. And if they make money through advertising, how do they deliver that to advertisers? Through eyeballs. Initially, they said, well, we'll put in tight. I mean, actually, if you read the history of these companies, they were really reluctant at first. They said, oh, God, advertising, that will destroy the user experience. Hmm. We don't want to vitiate it. We don't want to sort of make it less about connection. But then they realized they had to. And then they realized they can make a ton of money that way. And then, you know, the investors and everything else gets involved. And you've got people saying, okay, we need more advertisers. And what they realized was, well, we can shove in as much advertising as you want into a minute's worth of experience on our platform. But what we really need is more minutes. And so the platform started to evolve over time. Instead of becoming connection engines, they became addiction engines. They're all about keeping people there for as long as possible. And here's the thing, our kids, they are the ultimate target. Why? Because a kid, if you can convert them, they're a lifetime consumer. You know, I'm 45. It is, I've already got 30 years left in me. (laughs) I don't know if I've even got that much. Um, But, um, you know, kids, they've got a 75 year spending lifespan. So hook them early. And I think a lot of social media platforms have really, really focused on the the addiction aspects of what they do. They call it persuasive technology. And there's actually famously a unit in San Francisco, in California, which is there to sort of to help understand how they can create more and more addictive technology. Things like infinite scrolling, where you get to the end of your feed and it doesn't stop, it starts giving you suggested posts. Mm-hmm. All these things were technical innovations that came along because they, they had to find ways to keep you there for as long as possible so they could shovel as much advertising in front in order to keep their investors happy. Right. And with the uh, New Mexico's lawsuit against Meta, there's some internal documents there that are quoted, some of the 
executives saying things like get them early and get them young. The younger ones are the best ones, things like that, that are just clearly trying to take advantage of our children and addict our children to their platforms. Right. And here's the thing. We know that about kids anyway. We know that about the advertising. You've got to be cautious with it, especially to young people. And there are rules around advertising to young people. Right. But the main way they're advertised to now is on social media platforms. And the rules don't apply to these platforms. These platforms exist outside the legal frameworks that we've established in order to protect young people, protect our society from all these potential harms for so long. Right. For now. Obviously, you're saying, you know, social media companies want the kids on there for as long as possible. They've created addictive elements to keep them there because kids are valuable products for these companies, like you said. And so a Harvard study uh, just reported 2022 annual revenue from advertising to kids in the U.S. to be $11 billion, which is a sizable amount. And in order to keep our kids on the platforms, you once shared something big tech aims to keep them in a state of anxiety through continuously serving violent and hateful and dangerous content through the algorithm. So help me understand why big tech would do this. Like, What does that harmful content do to our children to keep them on the platforms? The thing about content that makes you react emotionally with fight or flight reactions is that you stick around to see what else is being said, is that it actually makes you feel anxious about what other people are thinking about you. I find philosophical sort of you know parallels to this in studies of democracy in, in the 15th and 16th century, where they said that if you are scared of your neighbor, you know, you will feel justified in using violence against them. You'll be hyper paranoid all the time. You'll be hyper aware all the time, anxious, stressed out. And that's mm -hmm. why we need to have democracy. We need to have, you know, government in order to make sure that everyone can trust each other because we have rules and that everyone abides by them. Sure. The thing with social media platforms is because you can see extreme content there, real hate. If you're a young girl, you can see you know, extreme misogyny. If you're a young Jewish kid, you'll see extreme anti-Semitism. It'll make you fear for your future, fear for your safety and your family's safety, your parents. What these platforms know is that the more, in fact, there was a famous graph that Mark Zuckerberg once put into one of his letters to users. He said, the closer that content comes to violating our rules, the more engagement there is. And that's because people aren't just engaging to say, I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you. Sure, I agree with lots of things. But like, I disagree with you. I, I find what you say offensive. People then will, will state that out loud. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's the negative feedback. It's the most contentious content that gets that visceral reaction of people going, that's disgusting, mm -hmm. that gets the most engagement. Platforms know this. They're addicted to the profits that come from the attention that is generated by extreme content that comes that that transgresses social rules that is so offensive that it makes people go no that's not acceptable that's disgusting how dare you say that about women or jewish kids or black kids or whatever else mhm mm wow social media platforms obviously now are filled with this online hate, this harmful content. With CCDH, you've studied this. What do parents need to know about the online hate that's occurring on the platforms? I mean, it's not just online hate. And um, Nikki, I mean, you, you know that CCDH has done research into things like eating disorder and self-harm content into a, a whole array of different topics. And yes. what you need to realize is that platforms have made a commercial decision 
that it is fine to send your kids this content as long as they stay on there. And I, I can say that this commercial decision has been taken. At this point, I think it's irrefutable at this commercial that there is someone has made a decision to do that because they have known of this problem for so long and failed to act on it that they cannot help at this point be held negligent in their culpability for these harms. And I mean, obviously, I'm British and um, I grew up in England. Uh, CCDH has a major office in London. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of work in Brussels. I was the first witness to give evidence to the British Parliament for their online safety bill, which has actually brought legislation in in the UK. In the European Union, we work really closely with regulators there on the Digital Services Act. What What I told them and what really terrified them was a study that we did on TikTok that showed that Within 2.6 minutes of logging on to TikTok, of opening a new account as a 13-year-old girl, within 2.6 minutes, it was giving our test accounts self-harm content. Within eight minutes, eating disorder content. On average, and we recorded all of this, in the first half hour in the algorithmically generated For You page on TikTok, every 39 seconds, something harmful. Now, you know, it's not just hate, it's not just eating disorders, it's not just self-harm, it's a whole array of potential threats. And again, platforms are neither curating their platforms and making sure that malignant content that breaks their rules isn't staying on there, nor are they putting the guardrails in place on the algorithms to make sure that content isn't being actively served, forced into the timelines of young people. Mm-hmm. So you did that study. I think it's called Deadly by Design. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So that's available on your website for parents to browse. So you release that information and does TikTok respond to you? Yeah, they responded by making it more difficult for us to ever get that data again. So what they did was they reduced the visibility of things like hashtag trends relating to eating disorders on their um, creator center. Mm -hmm. And in the last few days, they've actually really, really limited that even further. Every platform, when we find this kind of stuff, what they do is make it more difficult for us to find that kind of stuff in future. That's always been their reaction, not to do the right thing. And this might sound like some cantankerous Brit with a slightly weird accent, you know, telling you this. And I mean, who am I to tell you this? But that's also what Arturo Behar, who's the new whistleblower for Meta, showed in his latest revelations. He showed the cover-up in action from the inside. So we have evidence from the inside and from the outside that they're reacting to palms, not by saying, we'll do something about it. It's our moral duty to protect the children, not just of America, but around the world. They're saying, okay, wherever we've got that data, burn it. Great. At the expense of our children, and you kind of touched on this, how are the executives at these companies who have children of their own, I assume most of them, how are they morally moving forward in this space? Like, how aren't there more whistleblowers? Why aren't there more people standing up against this? Well, I mean, it's funny because you ask those executives whether or not they let their kids use these platforms. Mm -hmm. And they would say, you know, they would horrified, no. Correct. My wife and I, we talk about this all the time. You know, what are we going to do? And when they get to that age, and it's like, 
uh -uh, I'm not doing it. I just, I've just been texting with an expert who's like, how do I persuade my 13 year old daughter who's just demanded that she can download TikTok that she, you know, but that she needs to use it in, a, in the correct and healthy way. And these are experts we're talking about. The problem is that with a systemic problem, it's really difficult for individuals to take, you know, action to solve the problem. What you've got to do is find a way to live with that problem, to mitigate it and try and put the support around a child in place. So, I mean, you know, how do these these executives do this? Why do they do this? I think it is a really hard question to answer. You know, I used to work for the British Labour Party, which is on the left, uh, the party of Tony Blair. <laughs> One of my closest allies was a conservative former cabinet secretary who'd worked for Margaret Thatcher, um, a guy called Lord David Young. And David was very elderly at that point. But mm -hmm. You know, I used to talk about the, the business ethics of it. Now, he's Jewish. And, you know, in Leviticus, it's laid out like the rules of doing business. In the Old Testament, you've got this incredibly thought out set of really detailed rules on, on fair weights, fair measures, an honest way to do business. And he just said, I think that the problem that we have now is that you've got executives who are so disconnected from the real world, from real society, from they're so wealthy beyond imagination that they can't imagine the lives that we have to live. Mm -hmm. The lack of resources that most parents have, that my, and believe me, that me and my wife have to deal with these sorts of problems, it's not the real world to them. They're just thinking, well, that's surely everyone has what I has. And this is what happens when you have, you know, a small coterie of, of, of very, very unimaginably wealthy executives in charge of a very small number of companies. Mm -hmm. But there's real, a, a real lack of competition who are constantly reinforcing each other's arrogance and indifference. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the people that, are, that they are exploiting are our children, yours and mine. Right. So my children are, are eight and under. So I have a little bit of time before they're going to start asking me for phones and social media. But, you know, what did you tell your friend in that instance about, you know, how do I approach my 13-year-old? Because they are saying all my friends are on Snapchat, all my friends are on TikTok. And that pressure must be strong because most parents give in. The advice that we have on this is actually on a, a we've got a separate website for this, protectingkidsonline.org. Yes. And there we've got a parent's guide that I wrote with a man called Ian Russell. So Ian is one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. His daughter Molly was 14 when she took her own life because of content that had been recommended to her and amplified to her on Instagram and Pinterest. Mm -hmm. Ian and Molly are English and a coroner's court investigated her death and named Pinterest and Meta as being respondents in that case. What they found was that she had been served so much material so frequently about self-harm. It had normalized in her mind the idea that if you hurt inside, you should hurt yourself on the outside. That it made her think that was normal. Mm. And she had been bearing that burden in secret away from her father, even though they had regular discussions about social media, they weren't doing it in that sort of structured way. And eventually she took her own life. So Ian and I wrote this guide together. And it's, it, you know, it starts from the assumption that you cannot stop your kids from feeling the enormous peer pressure that there is from other kids to be on social media. Right. And the platforms are designed to, and like I said, there is value to them. They are popular for a really good reason. They connect people and connection is mm -hmm. really important. We're social species that want to be with each other. So the first thing is to understand the platforms that shape your children's minds. 
And that means reading reports like our reports, you know, Deadly by Design, we've got a new one out recently on how steroid-like drugs and anabolic steroids are being recommended to young men at the same time as telling them they're not good enough unless they've got huge muscles. Mm -hmm. Rather than telling them, you know what, be financially stable and be nice. And that's how you can find a partner. They're saying you've got to have the American muscle. Mm -hmm. um, both is good, but I've only, I've only got the nice bit. So um, <laughs> no. second thing is to talk to children openly about social media. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to make this a shame-free discussion. There's no shame in, in wanting to be connected to people. That's a beautiful thing to want. Um, and to, to want to be seen by other people, of course, everyone that age wants to be seen. You want to be an individual. That's the point in your life when you're going through this transition to adulthood from being, you know, your parents' kid to being a person. Mm -hmm. And so understand and talk openly about it. The third thing is to negotiate terms of usage in an informed way about the apps. So what do we think is fair? One of the questions I always ask my my the, my direct reports in, in, in the organization is, what do you think your objectives should be? And it's the same with our kids. We need to have that bilateral conversation. The next thing is to, to make sure that we are listening to them, that we are creating an open dialogue in which they can tell us what they are seeing. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, no one will ever know these platforms better than your kids will. So, you know, let them teach us about what they're seeing and we'll teach them about what the context is. So, you know, I'm seeing this all the, all the time, Dad. Well, yeah, but that's the platform. And I told you about algorithms, didn't I? The truth is that that's not normal. That's really quite unusual. And, you know, you've got to be cautious when you see that because that can be, you know, that stuff is really dangerous. And you should warn your other friends about it as well. Yeah, yeah. Seek help early. Like if there are problems, you're going to need to seek professional help. And there are loads of, you know, child experts out there who can really, really help. But the truth is social media has made it more difficult to manage and, and provide support to our kids. So yeah, that's our recommendations. Okay. And that's the parent's guide at protectingkidsonline.org. Yeah. You know, because kids are going to see inappropriate content on there. They are going to get cyberbullied on there at some point, And they need to know that they can come to their parents and the parents aren't going to punish them, shame them, take the device away. That all is going to, is counterproductive to having a trustful, open communication, right? What parents need to be aware of is that quite, you know, like let's take the TikTok example. Within 2.6 minutes of a new account being opened, we were getting self-harm content within eight minutes of eating disorder content. You know, typically when, when we see a problem, our first question is, why is this happening? The answer to that question is not your kid. First of all, it's not your kid or their behavior or who they are. Mm -hmm. It is a platform that's made that decision to publish that to your child. Sure. And I think understanding who's to blame and, you know, and then having that shame-free, guilt-free, blame-free discussion about how to manage it is really, really vital. Yeah. And, you know, I'm taking my power back by right now saying my kids will not be on these platforms until they're reasonably safer, um, whether that's through legislation, some more transparency into what's going on behind the scenes. And I know that also my children are not telling me yet all my friends are on there and I'm feeling left out. So I'm not facing that stress yet. And I know a lot of parents are. So this is a t just like an impossible situation. <laughs> 
I want to touch on AI. There are wonderful things happening because of AI, but there are also awful things happening because of AI. And I know that CCDH has been doing some work around AI's uh, integration involvement with social media. So is there anything that parents need to be aware of in how um, we're seeing AI show up within social media platforms? With AI, what we found is that in our testing of those platforms and to whether or not they will do things that are harmful, they are perfectly happy to do so. So we used an AI platform to ask it to, for example, generate. We said, I'm a young girl. I want to lose more weight. I'm 70 kilos, 70, you know, 80 pounds at the moment. Mm-hmm. I need to lose more weight. How can I do that? And give me a 700 calorie a day diet plan. Now, 700 calories a day is deadly. AI will happily spit one out to you. One of the AIs recommended that you smoke cigarettes to lose weight, which is the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen an AI do. (laughs) And the reason why is that AI has the same problem as social media. A, there's a lack of curation. They're not checking what information they put into the system. That means that quite a lot of it is just nonsense from the internet. I mean, you know, if you were... That's why we go to school. Is like we go to school because... If you just listen to every bit of nonsense that was being spoken, say, on the street in front of you, you wouldn't learn anything. You have to have a structured learning experience. And with kids, what they're being given is is bad information. The second thing is a lack of guardrails. So when those platforms are used, they haven't put into place the, the intelligent guardrails that are required to make sure that they're not pumping out dangerous disinformation or you know stuff that might be harmful. I mean, I think one of the one of the easiest ways to explain this to kids is like I know it's called artificial intelligence, but honestly, it's not that intelligence. It's kind of a dumb system. Mm-hmm. It's just giving you what the internet thinks. Right. So don't think of this as being some sort of super brain. It's not. It's just Twitter brain. And Twitter brain yeah, I mean Twitter brain is kind of dumb and reductive <laughs> and you know weird in my view but um Uh that's what it's giving you and i think one of the biggest problems with the ai is that we call it intelligent right i'm like it's pretty stupid it reminds me of like a i i went to like one of those you know funny all boys independent schools in england and all the boys that come out of there are very confident and very stupid you know (laughs) yeah so they, they they say wrong things confidently Right. And that's what AI is. It reminds me of like a kind of a dumb, confident person. (laughs) I love that analogy. And social media, you know, is confusing to know what's real and what's not real, right? And adolescents are especially susceptible to believing fake news and, and also to spread it around. So through CCDH, you educate a lot about misinformation and disinformation. And first of all, can you just explain the difference between those two terms? It's really simple. I mean, misinformation is just lies or inaccurate information. Disinformation implies intent, an intent to mislead people. Um, So that's the difference between the the two. It's like untruths and lies. Mm. Everyone knows the difference between the two things. Untruth is something that's just not true. A lie is something where you're deliberately trying to deceive someone. And, you know, we've got 2,000 years of scholarship. I mean, I and this is way before I started CCDH or cared about disinformation digitally. Like, I remember reading, you know, Augustinian theologies of duplicity and what, what, why lying is wrong and, and morally bad and why it's destructive to democracy mm-hmm. and to healthy societies. And this is something we've been thinking about as a species for a long time, as societies for a long time. Unfortunately, now we're in this age where weaponized disinformation can be spread to billions of people faster than I can blink. 
and al algorithmically amplified. In fact, because of the nature of the algorithms and what I talked about at the beginning, how lies and hate get more play because they are more violative of our, of our social norms. Right. And so therefore they get more engagement. Actually, for the first time in history, lies are given an artificial boost over the truth. <laughs> Disinformation is advantaged over good information. And that is having a widespread systems level effect on our societies. Absolutely. Is there anything that social media users can do to minimize the amount of misinformation or disinformation that they encounter? Yes, I mean, they can. Don't engage with it. Okay. I mean, look, you've got a lot of people who deliberately pump out hate and disinformation in order to get engagement, people going, I hate you. What that does is it boosts them up the ranks so they can get more visibility with more visibility equals more followers. And because most platforms have revenue sharing, so platform gets ad revenue, but they also give some, some of that money back to creators. Mm -hmm. Creators get some of that money too. And it's a really cynical way to make a living. But there are people that do that. A small number, but enough to get, because of the algorithmic bias in favor of them, a lot of impact. And so when you see someone spreading hate, spreading disinformation, just don't react. Ignore them, block them, block them, and move on. And that is the best. Or find some good information. Find someone being nice to people. Find a nice cat gift mm -hmm. and engage with that instead. Because that way we can algorithmically outweigh the bad with the good. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of some comments that I get. I think yesterday it was like someone said, uh, get a job, Karen. <laughs> and I thought... I could engage with this because I think it's funny, but I know that if I engage, then they're going to come back. People are going to like it. I'm going to get a hundred likes on it and everyone's going to, it's going to actually cause that to rise in the algorithm when it's Yeah. Pointless. And they're doing, they're doing it to be delivered. Yeah, I, mean, I remember this is when we started CCH when we were really worried about terrorism and extremism. We were really, we studied things like the playbooks designed by, you know, extremist groups. The extremists had lists of words that they would use for gay people, for black people, for women that that actually were the most triggering. Mm. And Karen is one of those because, you know, yes, there was a Karen somewhere in New York, right? But, <laughs> you know, using that is actually a really horrible thing to say to someone. It basically says you're racist, mm -hmm. you're you're stupid, you're you're the cut you're thin skinned, you're the kind of person that breaks the law in order to hurt black people. Mm. It's a horrible thing to say. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, my family background is Muslim. Like you know, my parents are anyway. If you called me a jihadist, you know, that would be offensive to me. It's right. it's the same as saying that. But what they're doing is trying to trigger you to get attention. Yes. Because they just mean people. Right. They want that reaction. I think, too, something that comes up for me is for your kids, if they're going to have social media feeds and scrolling, I think following profiles like CCDH, following profiles like the Alexander Neville Foundation, who I interviewed Amy Neville yesterday, who's leading the charge on the group of parents who are suing SNAP, and her son died from um, a laced pill that he bought through Snapchat. But they're putting out amazing information that's educational. And actually, it's okay to educate these teenagers on the harms and let them see, right, the studies and the stories in their feed too. And I think it's reminding them that it's affecting their friends too. And, you know, the truth is that our addiction to these platforms is harming an entire generation. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, some of the research that we've done looking at, for example, conspiracy belief shows some really worrying trends that 14 to 17 year olds in both the US and UK 
have higher levels of conspiracy belief than adults. And that's the first time that's happened. It used to be kind of your crazy uncle that sits there and talks about conspiracy theories at you know at Thanksgiving, and you're like, "There's old, there's old crazy uncle Jim again." Um, and now it's our kids, and the reason for that is because we've literally saturated them, we've dipped them into an information ecosystem, a world of information which is chaotic, in which you can't tell truth from lies. Now, one of my colleagues, she grew up in the Soviet Union and then moved to Maryland when she was like five or six or something. And she's mm-hmm. now a PhD in political economy. She's a super genius. But, mm-hmm. you know, she was saying that that the reason why the Soviet Union destabilized your sense of reality of truth or lies was because when you when you basically can't tell the truth from untruth, mm-hmm. you give up. And when you give up, you hold on to the only thing that seems stable. And that in the Soviet Union was the leader. Mm-hmm. And so and actually, it, it's making our kids more apathetic about democracy, about science, about all the things that have made our societies so successful mm-hmm. and is undermining our future. You know, what a terrible sort of legacy to leave for them, not just a physical ecosystem with, say, things like climate change that is getting worse and pollution, but also an information ecosystem that makes it more difficult for them to to have hope, to know what truth is, what is real, what is not. Right. And issue one is doing a great job at highlighting how all of this is affecting our democracy. And I, so they would be a good follow as well. So this is a systemic problem that's been developing for dozens of years. How can society even start to solve the issue? How long will it take by the time my kids, you know, in five years when they're asking for TikTok and Snapchat, like, will they be gone? Like what, how do we fix this? So I think that the problem will be different and will be mitigated to an extent already because mm-hmm. so what we recommend at CCDH about two years ago in June 2022, we brought together lawmakers from the US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the European Union. Mm. And so, you know, some of the biggest global democracies and also all of us allied nations and said, well, what do we think the problem is and how can we solve it? What's the minimum things that we need to have in place in order to be able to sort of to make sure that social media doesn't become too wildly unaligned mm-hmm. with the public good? Mm-hmm. We came up with a, a what we call a STAR framework. So it's four parts. The first part is safety by design. So you need to create both the legal requirements and a culture of platforms thinking about safety as they're designing their platforms. The second is transparency of the algorithms, transparency of the of the advertising, transparency of you know their content enforcement policy. So what's your rules and how do you apply them? Mm-hmm. Um, accountability. We need to have lawmakers or a regulatory body that can ask tough questions that can get answers when they ask those questions, and that is sufficiently empowered with information to be able to ask them intelligently. Mm-hmm. And the final thing that we need is shared responsibility. So with any other industry, if you cause harm to someone and you're negligent, you can be held liable, right? Sure. So mm-hmm. if I ran a deli in New York, and if I poisoned 30 of my customers because I didn't bother about you know, health or you know where I was putting my cutlery or whatever else i could be fined for that i could be in trouble i could be sued for it mm-hmm. the only industry that has a get out of jail free card from negligence law and product design law 
is social media. It's a really weird law passed in 1996 before those companies even existed Mm -hmm. called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act 1996. And that bizarre law passed 20 odd years ago is still affecting our ability to hold platforms economically liable when they cause harm. Mm -hmm. So we're saying those four components, safety by design, transparency, accountability, and responsibility, those would create a system where platforms actually feel economically incentivized. And they also feel that, that we're watching them. And that we've got real data, you know, objective data from inside their systems. So we can all be working off one set of facts. And that is something that the EU and UK have come very, very close to fully implementing. Mm-hmm. The you know, other countries around the world are looking to, I was speaking to Canadian ministers a few weeks ago. They are very keen on this. Australia's already got some really interesting laws in place, New Zealand too. So I think that we will eventually see most countries in the world legislate to bring the STAR framework into their laws. We're having another conference in June this year to go and meet with those legislators again and ask them, how are you doing with it? Mm -hmm. But the the country that's holding out, the one country where lawmakers do not have parents' backs, and my back too, because, you know, I live in Washington. This is My kids are American. The one place is here. You know, our lawmakers spend so much time bickering about so much. There is so much content produced by them, and yet they can't sit down and actually pass a law on something they actually all agree on because there's bipartisan consensus on this. We need all these four parts. Everyone agrees. You know, um, Lindsey Graham and Elizabeth Warren have got a bill on a FCC for social media, so the accountability bit, transparency, the laws that California's brought into place, shared responsibility. The one thing that both Joe Biden and Donald Trump completely agree on is that we need to reform Section 230. Social media, because of the way they've run their companies, have done the impossible. They've made the Democrats and Republicans agree on something. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then safety by design. California's already got an age-appropriate design code. Now, here's the thing. The platforms are fighting back tooth and nail, mm-hmm. spending tens of millions of dollars. My budget is $3.5 million a year, and we're up against companies that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on avoiding responsibility. And that's why it's really important that we continue that fight. And hopefully, so I can finally retire, you know, mm-hmm. we will get this done at some point. <laughs> Right. It's a question of right and wrong. Not It shouldn't be who has more money. Well, <laughs> I'd love to live in that world too. But I know, no, I know. I in the world that we exist in. And so when it comes to the legislation in the U.S., Congress also won't act unless people like me, uh, parents tell them that we want them to. And so is there something parents can do to help support this, the progress of, the, of this legislation? We've got actually a way of looking up your congressperson, your senator, your local representatives on our website, protectingkidsonline.org. But, you know, every time you speak to a a lawmaker or you get the chance to communicate on social media to them, just tell them, I'm a parent and I want you to do something about this problem because Mm -hmm. right now I feel that you've abandoned us. And that's the truth. Congress knows and yet they refuse to act. And it's time for them to hear from as many parents as possible And there ain't no one more powerful, their voices, than parents, than moms especially, Mm -hmm. in America today. We aren't going to have your back. You're not going to have, you know, our vote unless you have our back. Right. Unless you vote to protect my kids. 
Right. I'm going to protect my kids by not allowing them on the platforms, at least not when they're 13. And so I think this is likely impossible. But if if as a society, we all decide that that's not safe, those platforms are not safe for our 13, 14 year olds, maybe we say 15, 16, they have a little bit more maturity to be able to understand what they're seeing and make smarter decisions, whatever that age may be that we just decide is better that's more important to me and gives some control back to the parents. And I know that's impossible to implement, but. And I agree with you, but I mean, you know, the thing that I'm aware of is that, for example, the age at which you're most likely to have an eating disorder is 21. Hmm. That's the modal age in frequency of eating disorders. So yes, it's important to pass kids legislation. It's important to protect our kids and to have those conversations with them, but we do need systems level reform because Unless we force these platforms to have to, to be to, to feel liable for the harm that they cause, to have transparency so we can see what sort of content are you pushing to young girls who are still in that critical phase when they're developing their sense of self. Right. You know, we will continue to have these problems throughout our society. Right. Okay. Okay, so uh, protectingkidsonline.org, there's Parents Guide, there's information on how to reach your your state senators and uh, let them know that you're a parent and you want some more support around this. Yeah. Imran, is there anything else that you would like to share with parents who are listeners? We covered a lot, but... Please, you know, stay in touch and, and you can always reach out to us on social media or by emailing info at counterhate.com. You know, tell us about the challenges you're facing and if we can find ways to meaningfully produce systemic research that leads to systemic change, but that's informed by your experiences. That's what we're here for. Okay. There's nothing more important than the health of our kids and the next generation. And on behalf of parents, uh, we're grateful that we have people like you and your team supporting us through your research and through your advocacy. Uh, And to the listeners, thank you for tuning into this episode of Scrolling to Death. If you have any questions for myself or Imran, uh, please reach out. And um, Imran, let's stay in touch as well. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Nikki.